0: The reading this evening is from 2nd Timothy chapter 2 verse 22 to chapter 3 verse 15 and this can be found on page 996 of the church bibles. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, you know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, "'burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, "'always learning and never able to arrive "'at a knowledge of the truth. "'Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, "'so these men also opposed the truth, "'men corrupted in mind and disqualified "'regarding their faith. "'But they will not get very far, "'for their folly will be plain to all, "'as was that of those two men. "'You, however, have followed my teaching, "'my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, My patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus.
1: Well, thank you all very much. let me add my welcome to Chalmers this evening. It's really good to see you. Um, Please do keep page 996 open. We're doing um, uh, chapter three, verses one to nine. And I want to tell you about my bank. I have a bank which, um, or I I have an account at the bank, it's not my bank. I bank at a bank that has, uh, every time you try and make an online payment, it has a number of big, red, scary screens you have to click through. They say things like this. Are you sure this payment's going to a trusted source? If you have any concerns, turn back now. If you do not know the person, turn back now. If you're being asked to pay this urgently, think twice. Fraudsters use that tactic regularly. And so on and so on. So a few weeks ago, I was um, trying to pay uh, HMRC the tax I owed them. And I was second-guessing myself, to be honest. Like, HMRC? Can I trust them? You know, who are they, really? They're not my friends. They're not my family. What is their real name? They want my money on a certain date. Does that mean? Now, I used to think that was all a bit over the top from the bank. But actually, what the bank knows is that in the times in which we're living, online fraud is rife. In fact, apparently, post pandemic, burglary has gone right down because people are working at home, and online fraud is growing. The bank knows that's a real danger out there, and so wisely they keep issuing these warnings beware of fraudsters. This is what they might look like, this is what they might sound like, this is their tactics. Avoid getting sucked in at all costs. And basically tonight, that's the message of 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 9. It is a fraud warning. I mean, it is a financial fraud warning. You can lose a lot of money to religious charlatans. But actually, it's also wider than that. It's about spiritual fraudsters. People who claim to be Christian ministers or Christian leaders, but are fraudulent. You can see that's the point. If you look at chapter 3, verse 5, this is the kind of heart of our passage, chapter 3, verse 5, which speaks of people who have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. That's the spiritual fraudster. And you can see the key command just after that, avoid such people. Now, Paul's particularly thinking here about uh, teachers, uh, church leaders, You can see that from the next few verses if you just scan your eyes on into verse 6 and beyond. These are people who sneak their way into households and take advantage of vulnerable people. The scary thing about spiritual scams, though, is they don't just take your money, although they will take that. They also take your life and your hope. And so quite rightly, in his love and wisdom, God issues a fraud alert tonight in 2 Timothy 3. Those of us here who've ever been victims of fraud or, or have supported people, loved ones who have been, know it's just an awful thing. It's one of the most sickening feelings I think you can have, actually. That sense of, I think I might have been a victim of a fraudster. There's a sense of invasion, a sense of betrayal, a sense of shame, I should have seen it coming, a sense of fear, what are the consequences going to be? And if that's true with financial fraud or identity fraud, well, how much more with spiritual fraudsters, where the stakes are even higher? So tonight matters. Let me pray for God's help as we come to his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you speak to us always for our good. Every page of your word is breathed out by you and is profitable, it's useful for teaching us, for challenging us, for correcting us and changing us. pray tonight you'd help me to be a faithful minister of the gospel and help all of us not to be naive about the days in which we live, but to be protected from the real danger of spiritual fraud. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you want to know where we're going, there's an outline um, inside the sub-sheet. That's where we're going. We're going to work through our way through the passage in three steps. Um, But just before we do that, let me just remind us uh, of the question, who is this warning for? As in, who's Paul talking to here? I know we've said a a bit about this as we've gone through 2 Timothy, but just a quick reminder. uh, The direct recipient of this letter, this letter of 2 Timothy, is Timothy himself. He's a a church leader, a a full-time elder at Ephesus. So the kind of bullseye of the application target, if you like, is to church leaders, those in leadership roles. We need to take really seriously this fraud warning if we're elders here at Chalmers, full-time or or, or otherwise. There are certain models of ministry. There are certain people that are not the real thing and need to be avoided. We need to think about that as elders as we consider who to partner with, who to meet up with in the wider church scene. And we need to watch ourselves ourselves Had that last week, didn't we? The the need to watch ourselves in ministry. But actually, the application doesn't stop there, does it? As Robin's mentioned earlier in the series, Timothy actually isn't supposed to keep Bible teaching, gospel ministry, and leadership just to himself. He's supposed to share it and train others. We saw that back in chapter 2, verse 2. Timothy's to train up others who will help guard and proclaim the gospel in the next generation. And it's a real thrill. Here in Chalmers, there are lots of people, a huge number of people involved in Bible teaching and leadership at lots of levels. And it's not just the people like, on the training programs, so the, the ministry associates or the leaders in training. No, actually, everyone involved in small group leading is teaching the Bible and leading others. Uh, all those involved in youth and children and one-to-ones and pastoral support. And so what Paul says to Timothy needs to be passed on to those that Timothy is training and equipping. You do sometimes meet people who, younger in life, sometimes in early adult life, were part of a Bible-centered ministry, or a CU, or a student worker a good church, or perhaps became a Christian in a church like that, a church that took the Bible really seriously, But over the years, they've drifted from that to a very different model of ministry and actually a very different message. Timothy actually here is a fork in the road of his life. Paul's soon leaving the scene. And so Timothy is facing a choice. Is he going to stick with Paul's message and Paul's approach to ministry, even though that brings suffering? Or is he going to choose an easier path, join the ranks uh, with, with those who avoid suffering and change the message if they need to. Now, we're going to tackle next week from verse 10 onwards, but if you look briefly at verse 10, you can see the contrast. So, so today we're being told what to avoid, and next week we're going to, Timothy, and, and, and as we listen in, we are going to be told what to follow. So uh, Paul's saying, Look, you have seen the authentic version with me. Even verse 14, have a look at that quickly. As for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. See the contrast in our passage and that one. Don't go near these kind of spiritual fraudsters. Do, next week, be the genuine article. Stick with my pattern of ministry, patterned after the Lord Jesus. Be the genuine article like me. Anyone involved in any level of Bible teaching leadership needs that reminder. Stick with the truth, even if it's costly for you. But just before half of us switch off and think, well, I'm not currently in a ministry leadership role, or I'm not currently teaching the Bible. Remember, the letter is written to Timothy, yes, and those he's training, yes, but the whole church is listening, reading over his shoulder. You can tell that the very last word of the book, um, if you look right to the end of the book, chapter 4, verse 22, The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. It's y'all, it's the plural, y'all. Wish we were American, then we could say it properly. Um, But grace be with you all, who have all been listening to what I've been saying to Timothy and these other leaders. We all need to be aware of spiritual fraudsters and how to avoid being taken advantage of them. In the TV program, The Real Hustle, which I haven't seen much of, but I think they try and help you avoid fraudsters. They talk about the mark, the mark is the target. If the mark had a bit of intel about the fraudsters, well, they'd never be taken captive. And so we all need this, these verses, chapter three, verses one to nine. So let's get into it then. And we've got three points to look at. And, and we're going to start with verse one, good place to start, uh, which is one of only two commands in the passage. There's one in verse one, and there's the one we've already seen in verse five. So here's our first point, this command. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. So here's our first point. Don't be naive about the times we live in. Don't be naive about the times we live. What are the times we're living? Well, verse 1, that phrase, the last days, sums up the period we're living in. In a nutshell, the last days in the Bible are the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, the last days. And they begin with Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, going back to the Father. And they'll end when Jesus comes back um, uh, to judge the world. That's the last days. And if you want to be sure, that's the days we're in. Peter, at Pentecost, in Acts 2, when he stood up, he saw the Holy Spirit was being poured out, and he said, this is the last days, the days when God pours out his spirits. All of which means, this, these verses that we're looking at, they're not a prophecy about some future time, some kind of far-off, distant prophecy. No, there are a prophecy about this time, the times we're living in, the times Paul lived in and Timothy lived in and we're now living in now. These are our days. Now, what should we expect to see in the times we live? Well, sadly, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. That might actually be a surprise if, if we know our Old Testaments, because the last days through the prophets were a kind of climactic moment in God's plan for history. It was the big moment in, one way, in some ways where God's king had come and was on the throne, where God's spirit was poured out and where the message of forgiveness goes to the ends of the earth. The last days is an exciting moment in the Bible. As Peter says in that Acts 2 sermon, in the last days it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Which does mean, by the way, if you're not a Christian here, we're living in the last days of human history. That's what the Bible says. And in those last days, there is an opportunity to find forgiveness by calling on the name of Jesus. That's the message. That's the opportunity of this time. It's this kind of window of opportunity where God has paused until Jesus returns, giving more people the chance to be saved. So you might think, great, last day is exciting. But here, 2 Timothy 3, understand this. Don't be naive. In the last days, there'll also come times of difficulty. What's the difficulty? Well, the difficulty will come because of what people are like. That's verse 2. For people will be... And it's a pretty miserable list, isn't it? It's a pretty sobering list, a description of the human heart and human society. I think it's a sobering read because these things are not from another planet but things we recognize. Perhaps a bit about ourselves, about what we see around us, not just in the big headlines, but in our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our families, our society. Now, first, start, uh, first sight, the, verses two to three, it might seem like there's no organization. It's just a kind of jumble of descriptions of how bad things will be in the last days. Actually, I think there are a couple of deliberate things which I just want to point out. And particularly where Paul has chosen to begin and end the list. Just look with me, verse 2, he begins with what people love. Verse 2, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Then at the end of the list, verse 4, there'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And tucked in the middle is verse 3, not loving good. It's actually the, the heart of the human condition, the kind of underlying cause of the the mess and the mistreatment of people that we see around us, it stems actually from a deep root. It stems from misdirected love. People love self or money or pleasure, but they do not love God or good. That's Paul's analysis. And actually, as soon as we see that laid out, I think it is hard to deny this is actually what the last days are like. How many people love God in our culture compared to how many love self or money or pleasure? The early theologian Augustine defined the sinful human condition as love turned in on itself. Love turned in on itself. That is, we are as creatures made to love. We're made to love. We're, We're loving beings. It's core to us. We're made to love God and then others as ourselves. But sin has turned that love in on itself. So rather than God at the top as our number one love, we love ourselves at the top. And others and God, well, they can fit in when it's convenient or serve me when it's useful. Actually, our culture at the moment is going a step further than that, isn't it? Because it's not just in the West that we love ourselves over God or over our neighbour that's always been the case since the fall but actually now many voices in our culture would say and that's healthy and that's a good thing i mean you've got to look after number one you've got to be authentic define not as authenticity to our maker the god who gave us life but authenticity to me self love to deny yourself would be unhealthy To tell someone else to deny themselves would be outrageous. I want to do it my way. I know my rights and no one can tell me how to live. We are lovers of self in our culture. And we're lovers of money. By By the standards of nations around the globe and especially through history, many of us in the West are extraordinarily rich. And yet most of us feel we do not have enough. We're longing for more. Thinking if we could just get more. It's one of the blessings of having people in our church family from a range of cultures and different countries to kind of see through that blind spot and help us see how money-focused our culture actually is. Paul says people will be lovers of money. Then at the end of the list, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of good or lovers of God. In the last days, that is, people will decide what's right or wrong not based on what God says but just what feels good that is the most popular kind of moral philosophy or the most popular kind of religious teachings or the most popular form of politics, will have the mindset that says, do what feels good, and we'll back it. Don't worry about God, I'm sure he wants us to be happy. He wouldn't deny something that feels right. Again, self-control is seen not just as old fashioned, but as positively unhealthy. Why would you ever deny yourself something that's pleasurable? Lovers of pleasure, not lovers of God. Whether it's food or drink or drugs or sex. This is humanity's misplaced love. And that does lead to mistreatment of other people. So if my primary love is God, then I'll treat others the way he would have me treat them. I'd love them as myself. But if my primary love is self, well then all sorts of mistreatment of others will flow from it. Now, that's what sits in the middle of the list. We'll get to that in just a moment. But actually, there's one more bracket. So we've had the brackets of love, misplaced love. Inside those brackets is another bracket in the list. See if you can see it. Verse 2. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant. Or at the end of the list, verse 4, just before we get back to the loves, people will be swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So we've seen the most basic thing is misdirected love, but inside that is a pride, an arrogance, a swollen with conceit. That doesn't mean everyone walks around showing off how great they are. Of course they don't, because then other people would think less of them, and we love ourselves. We, we, We don't want people to get annoyed with ourselves. But actually, once we stop loving God and think we can ignore what God says... Well, for a creature to do that is in itself a proud action. Just think, to think I would know moral standards better than the creator of the universe, creator of the cosmos. Then inside those brackets of misdirected loves and misplaced pride, well, then you just get the list of the horrible ways people treat other people. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant. And here it comes. Here's what comes from it. Abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, talking behind people's backs, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, and swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Paul's saying, don't be naive about the last days. They're an amazing time. It's, It's the time of opportunity. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved But it's also a difficult time because this is what people are like. This is the kind of stuff you'll see on the news, but not just the news. The workplace, the home, the school, the bar, the nightclub, the sports pitch, the stadium, the schemes, the academic institutions, the government corridors. People will mistreat people. They they will slag each other off. People won't control themselves but fly off the handle. People won't be trustworthy. People will be cruel. People won't be grateful to God. I mean, it's a grim picture, isn't it? a grim picture of the human heart, a bit like the picture we're seeing in Genesis at the moment of the human heart. That's our first point. Don't be naive about the times we live. But then, and this is the shock of the passage, this is the, the thing that should stop us in our tracks, although I gave spoilers earlier. Then comes verse five, and our second point, this is the shock. Paul here having piled up this grim description of the world out there in the last days, this this sinful human heart condition, this this dysfunctional societal picture. At that moment, he drops the bombshell, and I'm talking about people in the church. I'm talking about people who call themselves Christians. Verse 5, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. What? Huh? Huh? Sorry? You're talking about Christians. And as it goes on, you're talking about Christian teachers. As in, you're talking about pastors and elders and ministers. That's what that description was about. Yes, the appearance of godliness. They look the part. They appear the genuine article. Actually, underneath, this is what's going on in their heart. These are spiritual fraudsters. Wolves in sheep's clothing. To his point, too, we're not to be naive about the times we live. We should expect to see this stuff, misdirected love, misplaced pride, mistreatment of others. And, shockingly, we should expect to see it in some Christian leaders. I put Christian in inverted commas because Paul is pretty clear uh, by the time we get to verse 8 that these people are disqualified regarding the faith. So he's talking people about people who aren't actually Christians, but are pretending to be or talking the talk. False teachers. Fraud alert. Now, let's just look at verse 5 closely to try and understand what's going on with these people. It is a shock, this. I think we are supposed to kind of stop in our tracks and think, hang on. You're saying there are people who are in pulpits or in robes or officiating marriages or funerals. It doesn't have to be robes. It could be chinos and a smart shirt like this. People who are pastoring other people through suffering who are in fact fakes. That's what you're saying, Paul. Yes. I'm saying there are people who look like they love the church, but they actually love themselves and money and pleasure. They don't love the God they speak about so confidently. And they would be confident. That's one of the marks. We don't need to go far, do we, in our days to see modern examples of this. There are scandals of abuse, sexual abuse, abuse of power, cover-ups in major denominations. There's bullying, there's taking advantage of people. There are financial scandals. And we mustn't think these are all like miles away in the Christian world, like in completely different churches to this one, completely different denominations. Now, we're not just talking about like the prosperity gospel with its private jets. Those no, scandals happen in evangelical churches too. I was a student, the church I was at, the minister, he, he, he rolled out a piece of paper that kind of hung down from the pulpit. It said, Warning, this pulpit could contain a false teacher. I've never forgotten it because it was helpful. Surely not, Chalmers. Surely not. No, the Bible's warning us loud and clear in the last days, this does happen. We should expect to sometimes encounter a worldly church leader. Until Jesus comes for final judgment, until he purifies his church once and for all, there is going to be a mixed bag on the ground, the kind of ministries and ministers we come across. Now, I just want to look again at verse 5. These people have the appearance of godliness, but there's one other thing about them. They deny its power. What does it mean to deny its power? But the appearance of godliness, they appear charming, warm, Christian, they're using the right kind of words, language, they're winsome and kind in their tone, they're a great listen, heartfelt speaker, lovely stories. But, but what's going on in this denying the power of godliness? We need to know this both to avoid it in others and to watch out for it in ourselves, those of us involved in, in Bible teaching leadership. I think this is basically saying that that these spiritual fraudsters don't take their own medicine. That is, they're proclaiming Christian words and using the name Jesus, they're looking the part, but they're not actually submitting to the gospel themselves, not repenting and trusting Jesus for forgiveness themselves, not changing when God calls us to in the gospel. That, I think, is what denying its power means. Just to show you that from 2 Timothy, keep a finger here and just turn back to chapter 1. Um, So the last time in the book we we heard this word power, the only other time actually Paul's used this word power was in verse 7 of chapter 1 and then verse 8 of chapter 1. Let me just read those verses, chapter 1, verse 7. Paul says to Timothy, God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Two times in that little passage, the word power. And it's very clear, isn't it, what kind of power God provides through the gospel. In verse 7, it's the power of the Holy Spirit living in our hearts. When you turn and trust Jesus for yourself, God puts his spirit in our hearts. That's what's happened with Timothy. And that spirit is the spirit of power and love. Well, that would be helpful if the human heart has naturally got misdirected love. And self-control, well, that would be helpful if the human heart is naturally a heart that chases pleasure and money and my own good over others. God has put his spirit in any genuine minister. They themselves have trusted in Jesus. And so um, God the Holy Spirit helps us to grow in love for God, love for others, sacrifice of self for the good of others. But these false teachers, these spiritual fraudsters, have said no, actually, to the gospel themselves, no to the Holy Spirit filling them, no to Jesus themselves. Which means they'd never suffer for the message they love pleasure and self too much for that. The message is going to have to change if it's going to cost us. I guess it means they wouldn't want to teach anything that's too negative. I mean, none of this talk about being saved by grace from our sin or from God's wrath. I mean, that's just all too negative. I, I prefer to have a kind of positive take on Christianity. Jesus was life affirming after all. They wouldn't like talk of judgment. If you ask them privately, challenge them, they might say, yeah, well, I believe that. I'm not going to say it in public. That might offend. They certainly wouldn't say what, what Paul said in that, in that verse, um, verse 9, just after that mention of God's power. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. This idea that God would call us to change our behavior, that God would call people to repentance, all people including the people in the pulpit. They're denying the real power of godliness, says Paul. God's power by his spirit to change us. God's power by his spirit to stand for the truth of Jesus, even when people don't like to hear it. Okay, that's what it's saying. How does it apply? Well, first off, for all of us, are we careful who we're listening to when it comes to influence over our spiritual life? The command here is to avoid such people. Uh, and, and in this internet age, more than ever, we are in contact with a vast library of potential content. I mean, that's why my bank is warning me, because almost anyone could, could get in contact with me. Um, there's all sorts of ways, all sorts of access to commit fraud from a distance. And the same is true spiritually. We need to be really careful who we listen to. Now, as I say that, let me just clarify something. What I'm not saying is you should only listen to charmers or only listen to us as if that would be the healthy thing. Um, Actually, if if any church tells you to only listen to what they say, that's usually a sign of danger. That's what cults do. No, we, we want to encourage us to benefit from healthy Bible teaching from other places. But how do you know it's healthy? It's hard, isn't it, on the internet, because you can't actually see someone's life. That's how scandals often happen, actually. Massive internet presence. Wreck of a life if you ask someone in their church. So it's well worth asking people you know about people they know. Can you recommend healthy teaching to me? churches where there is authentic signs on the ground that these people are willing to do what God says, and even if it's costly, not to just go with the famous or the glitzy. That's one line of application. Be careful who we listen to. But of course, we need to also apply it to Bible teachers themselves. Remember, that's what Timothy is. I said earlier, he is facing a fork in the road here as Paul comes to the end of his life. Timothy is facing a choice, as we do each day, each week, of what kind of ministry we're going to continue with. And if he continues Paul's way, the the real way, the Jesus way, it is going to be costly. People actually are starting to abandon Paul because his way of ministry has ended up in prison. So Timothy, what are you going to do? Roger, what are you going to do? And if you don't know me well, I'm temperamentally, I'm a complete coward. So this comes really close to home to me. Rather not stick my head above the power, of prayer, please. If you're someone here at Chalmers and you have gifts to teach the Bible, if you could be involved in leading Jesus' church over the coming years, if you're a map or a lit or a elder or a small group leader or a youth and children's leader, what's going to be your choice? Because it is quite a stark choice. There's tell people the truth, and that will be costly at times, or there's tell people what they want to hear will feel better and be deadly, ultimately. Now, when you're here, surrounded by encouragement and support and all these numbers, that feels like a relatively easy choice. But actually, it only gets more costly as we go on. I remember the first time in ministry that I suddenly realized I was in a room with wolves, spiritual wolves, in sheep's clothing. I'd been studying the Bible one-to-one with Someone, he was studying theology at a London university. He brought me along to to meet some of his colleagues and some of the faculty afterwards at the chapel there. And they looked the part. Lots of liturgy, lots of mentions of Jesus during the service, only as a swear word afterwards. Some of them were clearly powerful, influential voices. And after chapel finished, there was talk about how all spiritual roads kind of lead up the mountain. It was very warm and friendly. And then there was talk about how in the evening they were planning to get wasted. I honestly didn't think that person exists. But there they were. The appearance of godliness, at least while they were doing the rituals, but denying its power. I was completely shocked. Perhaps I was naive. But actually, as I got gone on in ministry... The thing I'm more sobered by these days is how easily I could wander towards this model of ministry. How tempting it is, genuinely tempting it is in my heart. You see, when the choice is Paul and Jesus' side, but you might end up in prison. You might actually suffer. People might not like what you say. They might get angry at what you say. Well, then the other alternative does become pretty tempting, to be honest. The seeds of self-love and money love and pleasure love, they're all still in here. And it would be quite easy to begin the process of drifting from the message. Um, you don't know this, but on my script, I write a full script. Sometimes I've got bits of applications. you know what? As I look at them, I think, ooh, that's quite, that's quite strong, or that's quite... I'm not sure everyone's going to enjoy hearing that. Do you know what I'm tempted to do? I'm tempted to just skip over, and you would never know. Well, you'd eventually work it out over months or years, I trust, but you wouldn't know that week. It's tempting, especially now we're online. <laughs> Anyone might hear what I'm saying. Tempting. Back in chapter 2, verse 18, some have already swerved from the truth. Hymenaeus and Philetus, these were known people to Timothy and Paul. It's tempting sometimes just to have as the aim of a sermon that I hope they leave feeling good. Lovers of pleasure. I hope they leave thinking, I'm a great guy, lovers of self, rather than we've come here to listen to the Lord. We've just got to be faithful. Okay, that's our second point. You should expect to see that in some Christian leaders. So watch out, watch out for others, watch out for ourselves. And then finally, this, the straight command, uh, verse end of verse 5, avoid such people. Now, avoiding people isn't very popular in our culture. We like to kind of come together. And, and Jesus does want unity in his people, so there's a biblical argument for coming together. Last week, we saw the desire to gently correct people. Last week, the end of chapter 2, was all about being winsome and, and not just picking fights and causing quarrels. But Paul is saying, nevertheless, there are some people and some models of ministry you just have to avoid. It's too dangerous it's spiritual fraud. and I think verses 6 to 9 just show us how, how kind of serious this fraud is. Just follow with me as I read. Avoid such people, verse 6, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janice and Jambres opposed Moses, so these people also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not go very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as it was to those two men. Of, of those two men, sorry. Now, Paul's point here in verse 6 is that these spiritual fraudsters worm their way into vulnerable people's lives and homes. He's not making a point about women in general, saying they're weak. No, he's talking about some specific vulnerable women in, the, in Ephesus who've been exploited by these spiritual fraudsters fraudsters. From the end of verse 6, it seems they were particularly vulnerable because of sins in the past. And often fraudulent religion does do that. So it preys on the guilty conscience of people and proposes all sorts of false solutions to it. There's two main tactics. One, the extreme legalism approach. If you just follow our 10-step plan to to self-improvement, if you just do this strict asceticism, well, that will deal with your guilty conscience. Or on the other hand, the license approach, the do whatever you want, the it doesn't actually matter, you don't need to feel guilty. Now, verse seven says, whichever study plan these fraudsters were offering, I don't know which it was, it doesn't actually go anywhere. No doubt they're charging a high price for ever more courses on how to be a better you in 10 steps, but, but actually they're never bringing people to the real gospel the free-of-charge gospel, that Jesus can give us grace and forgiveness in eternal life. Still the case today that fraudsters prey on the weak and vulnerable. I was speaking to someone in Chalmers uh, who has aging parents. One of them has dementia. They've been victims of con artists at least twice. Uh, one time they managed to insert fake messages inside a family WhatsApp channel It was only visible um, to to this person. And it seemed to them like their son was asking them for money. They spoke as if they were speaking to their mum. And they paid thousands before the fraud was discovered. The other time was even worse. It was a door-to-door scam. The dad had dementia and was exploited with a claim that the gutters needed work. They didn't. And then was told they'd already done the work, which they hadn't. And then told the bill needed to be settled right now in cash. In their confusion, this particular person wasn't sure what the truth was and said, I don't have the money to pay. So they gave them a lift to a cash machine to get the money out. It's just sickening, isn't it? It's horrible, horrible hearing that, to see vulnerable people exploited. But tonight, God's warning us that that kind of thing is going on in the church. people's lives. It's what at the heart of debates in the Church of England at the moment or the Church of England in the past about whether it's okay to leave the Bible's teaching in various areas of morality, marriage, human sexuality. They're not just disagreements about unity, they're disagreements about what is the gospel and there's fraud going on Striking in verse eight, these men oppose the truth. Now, the mention we're out of time, but the mention of Janus and Jambres—these um, uh, are uh, their names aren't in the Bible, but it's referring to two um, two of the magicians of Pharaoh's court. Um, the thing about these magicians, if you remember back to the the miracles that Moses was doing in the plagues of Exodus, the thing about the magicians of Pharaoh's court is that For a short while, they looked the same. Uh, So uh, Moses turns a stick into a snake, or God does. And they're like, oh yeah, we can do that one. Uh, Moses turns water into blood. Yeah, we've got one a bit like that. Produce some frogs. Yeah, we can produce a few more. But actually, that's as far as they got. They had the appearance of power, but not the real thing. And in the end, they're exposed as frauds. They have to admit the actual power of the living God was... Not with them, but with Moses. And that's what Paul's saying here. That uh, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as it was to those of those two men. Now this can happen suddenly, when sin suddenly is exposed, when a scandal breaks into public. It can happen gradually as life is squeezed out of the church in the West by those who are moving away from the Bible's teaching in various areas. Or it will happen when Jesus returns, if not in this life. And so Timothy, and so Chalmers, I know it's costly to stick with the real gospel, that suffering lies down that path. But it is more costly to join the fraudsters. I know you could be more popular as a church or a speaker if you never said anything was wrong. But this matters. Next week we'll see the positive, what it's supposed to look like. It's costly, but it matters. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we do thank you again for your love for us. You don't leave us in the dark about what to expect of our world and of the times we live in. And it is sobering. This is sobering stuff. Sobering when we see it in the Bible, even more sobering when we see it in our world. Father, we don't want to be proud or complacent ourselves. We pray you would protect us from wandering or swerving from your truth, the gospel. And please strengthen us by your spirit. Give us power and love and self-control so we can keep speaking of Jesus, even when that costs. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know how 2 Timothy 3 leaves you feeling. I have to remind myself, the aim is not that we always feel good after every passage. But if we are feeling daunted, if you're feeling daunted like I am, what a great song to close our time with and appeal to the great God of heaven, the highest God, who can change us and strengthen us and keep us individually and as a church family. Let's stand if we're able and sing O Great God as a prayer.